Thank you very much, Adam. Yes, please do turn to Mark chapter 6 and check that I am being faithful to what God tells us in his word, amongst other things. Page 841, if you're using the church Bibles. If you were here this morning, you'll know that we did the first half of chapter 6, so it's a, this morning, so it's a, it's a full-on Mark day today. Um, we're going to pick it up after the apostles have come back to Jesus, having been sent out at the beginning of the chapter, at least verse 7. The apostles returned, this is verse 30, sorry. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Now, a denarii was a day's wage. I don't know what you get paid for a day's work, but let's be very modest. Let's say you're prepared to work for 100 pounds a day. You may be thinking, oh, you must be joking. Well, let's suppose you are. What's that? That's 20 grand. That's quite a lot of money for a picnic, wouldn't you say? So they're saying, Jesus... You expect us to go and pay 20 grand for bread and give it to these people to eat? And Jesus said to them, okay, so how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Just thought we'd throw that in, two fish. Then Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. 
Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after Jesus had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, literally in the middle of the lake. And he was alone on the land. And Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, sort of 3 a.m. roughly, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Jesus got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Our Father, please may our hearts not be hardened, but softened to your word that we might receive it and benefit from it to eternal life. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So how satisfied are you with the leaders that you know? Maybe you're in a workplace and there are leaders in the workplace. Or think of the nation, the leaders that we have. Or if you're from another nation, think of the leaders you have. Or think of the leaders in the church. In this church, if this is your church, or another church, if you're from another church. Are you satisfied with them? Now, I don't know your circumstances in life. Most of you know very little about them, but... Let me ask you this, whatever the circumstances you find yourself in at the moment, how calm are you about those circumstances and where they might lead? There's the answer. Maybe you're facing a situation which, truth be told, when you think about it inside your head, is terrifying. You're really troubled by what is going on. Calm would not be the word that you would use to describe your feelings. Well, we're diving into Mark's gospel again here in the middle of chapter 6. And do you remember how Mark, at the beginning of his gospel, very helpfully, and I hope I remember to thank him one day, says right in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is Messiah, the Son of God. So he tells us right at the outset that he's going to tell us about Jesus. Two things. Number one, he is the Messiah. And number two, he is the Son of God. It's more than just a human king. And I wonder, I, I wouldn't go to the state for this, but I wonder if in this section we're looking at, Jesus is highlighting one and then the other. He's talking about particularly Jesus as the Messiah, the promised king, and what kind of king he would be, and then about Jesus as the Son of God. What does that mean? 
to say that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, you can judge for yourself whether you think I'm on target on this. doesn't matter too much if I'm slightly off target because what we know for sure is that we're talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, as we look at these two sections, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, it also answers our questions about the leaders that we have, whether they satisfy us and why not, and the circumstances that we encounter, especially when we find them a bit terrifying, to be honest. So the 12 are just back from their mission trip at the beginning of chapter 6. Doubtless exhausted and in need of a break. And so Jesus in verse 30, 31 says, Come away by yourselves to a nice quiet place. We'll just have a little retreat. Because I can see that you're exhausted. Let's go off and have a break. Well, it doesn't quite work out, does it? They go off in the boat but everyone sees them going and runs around the shore and gets there ahead of them. So when they land in verse 34, Jesus saw a great crowd. And, well, what would you have thought? You've just organized this fantastic holiday, this break, and you turn up, oh, look who's here. Terrific. All the people you've been trying to avoid. Welcome. How lovely to see you. Well, no, Jesus is not like us. Look at verse 34. He had compassion on them. It's, a, it's an unusual word. It means his guts were turned. It's a lovely graphic word. It's only used of Jesus, actually, in the New Testament, interestingly. He really was compassionately turned towards them, not against them. Why? Because, verse 34, they were like sheep without a shepherd. There was no one to lead them. Of course, a shepherd in that culture, even to this day, is, is a leader of the sheep, not a harasser with dogs and whistles like in our part of the world. They just had no leader. And what we see, first of all, in verses 34 to 44 is Jesus is the Messiah, the leader who cares and satisfies Verses 34 to 44. Thanks, Will. If you could just advance that one, that would be great. Thank you. Now, of course, Jesus' followers at this point, they think Jesus doesn't quite get it. This is a big crowd. Um, and interestingly, well, Jesus does his typical thing at the end of verse 34. What does he do? He starts teaching them. Well, that's what he's come for. He's come to teach first to do more than that but the first thing Jesus does is he teaches those who are in front of him we've seen that in this gospel so far that that's Jesus is not a healer first and foremost he will heal as occasion demands but that's not his focus he's a teacher he's the rabbi well it's been a long day and verse 35 it's 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 very late and the disciples seem to I, I suspect they're thinking Jesus you need to be a bit practical here these guys are all famished. They've run ahead. Here they are. There's a whole lot of them. We need to be sensible about this. You need to let them go and buy food in the farmhouses and the villages and the towns around. But it's actually, as we discover, Jesus' followers who don't get it, at least from Jesus' perspective. 
Because Jesus says, well, um, verse 37, you give them something to eat. You can hear the kind of grinding of their wheels in their brains at this moment, thinking, does he really mean that? And one or two of them who are good at mental arithmetic quickly work out how much this is going to cost. They say, hang on a minute, if we were going to go out and buy food for this lot, you know how much it would cost us? Jesus, you seem to have lost the plot here. Um, It will cost us, well, at least 20 grand. Well, Jesus doesn't argue about how much it's going to cost. He asks for a quick stock take of what they've got. And they come back with the answer. There it is in verse 38. Hey, guess what, Jesus? We've got five loaves. And oh, by the way, we managed to rustle up two fish as well. Isn't that great? Amongst 5,000 blokes. Two fish. How's your mental arithmetic, Jesus? Um, Each fish will have to be divided into two and a half thousand little tiny bits. You ever tried doing that? I, it's very difficult, isn't it, to tell the tone of voice when you read the scriptures in some of these encounters. Were they, was there an incredulous tone as they said this to Jesus? They were finding it really hard maybe to, to stifle the giggles or, or maybe the mockery to the more cynical among them. It's a kind of, you must be joking, Jesus. This just ain't going to work, is it? Come on, get real. Well, Jesus just seems to ignore all that and, and just starts giving orders. You see that, and it's quite striking in verse 39. Jesus then commanded them all. He didn't make a polite invitation or suggestion. He says, right, into groups of 50 and 100. Now, come on, guys, get them organized. So they do. He didn't argue with Jesus when he was in command mode. Now, the command is to all of them. You see, that it, it's, I don't know if the all is of the disciples, just the 12 in verse 39. It, it seems to me it could well be for the whole crowd. He just raises his voice. He clearly had a terrific public voice and just tells them all to get into groups of 50 and 100. And so they do. Now, this crowd, what are they all doing there? It's striking, isn't it? Verse 44, there are 5,000 men, and it's very clear that these are 5,000 males. Um, I think it's Luke who mentions beside women and children. And it's John, who in John 6 tells us, recording the same incident, I think, that, that there was a bit of political subversiveness going on. Galilee, where this is happening, up north, uh, is where most of the insurrections happened. Now, I don't know what your view of English insurrections is in history. I'm not too well up on it, but I know that in Ireland, where we lived for many years, County Cork, anyone know what County Cork is called? Look at it, Rachel, that's a bit unfair, isn't it? Um, anyone know what County Cork is called? Every county in Ireland has a name. Ah, I'm, I'm going to... No, Elizabeth? No, it's, it's, this is Ireland, George. Um, uh, I'll tell you, it is called the Rebel County. And if you know anything about the history of the uprising against the British in 1920-21 and the Black and Tans, 
don't get me going. Um, that's where it all happened. That's where Michael Collins was assassinated. Anyway, it's a whole other story. I'm sorry, I'm getting digress digressing into Irish history here. Um, but Galilee was the place you went in Israel if you wanted to find the insurrectionists. Where were the rebels going to be found? Hiding out in the hills in Galilee. So it's quite possible that they feel, and this, maybe this coming and going, did you notice that in verse 31, is to do with, there's a bit of political machination going on here. There are people who are saying, we think Jesus might be the guy to lead us next against the Romans. And clearly in John 6, that's what they intended to do after the feeding of the 5,000. But Jesus refuses to get political. But he does get theological. He does a powerful miracle of provision for all these people from this tiny starting five loaves and two fish, which echoes the miraculous provision of bread in the desert in Sinai under the leadership of, well, you know the name, Moses, the rebel leader. And as he does that, people rightly think, could this be the liberator of God's people that Moses prophesied would come? A prophet like me, listen to him. That's what Moses had said. And yet it's interesting, as we've already noted, that when Jesus sees this great crowd without a leader, like sheep without a shepherd, verse 34, what does he do? What's the first thing he does? He begins to teach them many things. Now, wouldn't we love to know what he taught them? We're not told. We don't need to know at this point. But it's highly likely, isn't it, that he taught them the kind of things that we read, which Jesus quoted in another place, but which we read in Deuteronomy, for example, in the Old Testament, where, and Jesus would know this, we're told we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what will bring us life. But we do need bread. Jesus taught his followers to pray, didn't he? Very practically. Give us today our daily bread. And so Jesus provides the physical needs of this huge crowd as well as teaching them. And what is very striking is verse 42, isn't it? Have you ever, ever thought about verse 42? They all ate and they were all satisfied. Now that word is sometimes translated, if you look at some of the modern translations, in terms of they couldn't eat anything more. They were full up. So when the disciples kept coming around, there was so much left over. Look at verse 43. Twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of a fish. And when they were, presumably, they were sensible enough to go around offering seconds and thirds and things to people. And they got to a point where they said, oh, you're very kind of, I'm absolutely full. But that's what happened. They were all full up. Not a single one of them could take another single mouthful. Now, I don't know how you feel when you see people in obvious need, maybe going down the street, even a place like Richmond, relatively affluent part of the world. Or maybe that's part of the reason they're there. You see people on the streets, don't you? Begging with little signs, telling you about their plight. Now, what is your reaction when you see those cardboard signs? Now, if you're a bit of a cynic like me, you kind of think, really? I wonder, 
if that's true. Now, I hope you're not a cynic like me. I hope you might be a little more compassionate. And even a cynic like me is moved by some of the people I see. And I don't know how you respond, whether you actually engage with them and say, can I get you something to eat? I don't know. How do you feel about people in need? But one of the things I'm sure of, even when I, on a better day, I'm feeling a bit more compassionate than on other days, one of the things I'm absolutely clear on is that there's no way I can meet this person's need. I might be able to give them a sandwich, I might be able to point them in the right direction for a homeless shelter, something like that. But their needs are far greater and deeper than I can handle or help with. But I know someone who can. I know that Jesus is the answer to their need, whatever it is, ultimately. And I don't know how you feel about the leaders that we encounter, maybe in your place of work or certainly in the country and often in church circles, Christian circles, who make massive promises of change. And sometimes we believe them for a while and sometimes they're very eloquent and articulate and they put it very well and you think five points, taking back control or whatever it is. And, and you think, wow, wouldn't that be great? And then, well, when you get over the age of about, what would it be? Someone tell me. When do you start getting a little cynical about politicians? What age would that be? Could someone help me? How many? 20. Thank you. <laughs> you know how it is. You start to think, I've heard this one before. You know, there are plenty of, if you're into comedy, there are plenty of good skits about the political speech, aren't there? And um, you begin to think, this is just, I'm afraid, my friend, it ain't going to happen, is it? I don't know if you realize that, my political leader friend, but there's a bunch of us here who think, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. You're deluding yourself at best. Well, Jesus makes some astonishing promises. And ultimately, he will perform them all. More than we can ask or imagine. He's, it's actually going to be better than anything we can grasp at the moment in the end. When he returns and brings in the new world, every human need and aspiration will be satisfied. Do you believe that? Now, of course, it's the waiting that gets us, isn't it? Because waiting can very easily erode our faith. Which is why it's so important, and Mark is so helpful in us getting clear on the identity and power of Jesus. Because Mark wants us to see what kind of Messiah Jesus is, what kind of promised king. We wonder, don't we, if these politicians who say they really care about our situation, whether they really do. Well, Jesus is the one who had genuine compassion for crowds who would have sent us nuts. Our plans ruined. Oh, no. Look at the crowd. Not Jesus. He is God's shepherd. That promise we started with from John about abundant life. Jesus said, I've come to give life and give it abundantly. 
very interesting. I'd never really noticed or thought about this before. But the immediate next phrase, remember, John didn't write with verse numbers. He didn't write, and now, verse 10 or whatever it is, or verse 11. Uh, the next phrase is Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. Life abundant, life in its fullness will come through me, the shepherd of his sheep, who cares for his flock and provides for them, not just a little or enough to get by, but abundantly, so that you are satisfied with what you're given. I don't know about you, but I am so easily dissatisfied in life. Maybe it's not fair to ask this question or suggest this, but just stop for a moment and think of something in life that you're not satisfied with at the moment. Might be your school, your teacher, might be your family, might be, dare I say it, your spouse, or your children, or your parents. Just think of something that you're not satisfied with. Or your job, or your prospects. Have you thought of something? Is it making you feel happy? Sorry if I'm making you feel miserable. But I want you to then contrast that feeling, that sensation, if you like, with this Jesus that Mark is telling us about. He's the one who fully satisfies. He will never disappoint you. In the end, he will do everything he's promised and more. And let me ask you, do you actually believe that? And let me ask you another question. Have you begun to experience that in your heart and mind? Such that as you think about Jesus, you think about someone who makes you smile, makes you joyful, makes you think, yes, he's never let me down. He's always given me what I need and more. And there is so much more to come. If I have Jesus, I have all I need for time and for eternity. Well, Jesus is the Messiah, the leader who cares and satisfies. Secondly, and a bit more briefly, Jesus is also, and this is the second nature miracle that Mark highlights, Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord, who comes to us and calms us. Verses 45 to 52. It may be that there's this political stuff going on, but, and he wants his disciples right out of it, because you see it's quite tough wording in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Into the boat. There's no question, no discussion here. Get into the boat and off you go. Again, it's, it's extraordinary authority being imposed here. He dismisses the crowd and goes up the mountain to pray. And then later, late into the night, the boat is out at sea. Jesus is alone on the land. And he sees that they're, they're struggling against a headwind. Now, I don't know if you've ever rowed a big boat. These boats, they've, they've found one uh, on, in the mud uh, on the Lake of Galilee. I think I talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, you know the boats by Richmond Bridge, the big rowing boats? Um, where's Linda? You row these, don't you, Linda? They're beasts, aren't they? They are. They are. Now, you're, 
Sorry? And there are bigger ones. Now, you're lucky because you just throw them on the river. That's easy peasy, isn't it? It's just nice and flat. But if you take that off into the, into the sea, and remember, the Sea of Galilee is, is seven or eight miles across, and it's, it's got a bowl of hills around it, and the winds get up considerably there. So this kind of headwind is probably very strong. And, of course, with wind goes waves. It follows. It's the law of nature. Um, and so they're, they're struggling to row this heavy boat into the headwind, into the waves. And Jesus can see this. The boat was out on the sea. Verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully, painfully slowly. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, this is about 3 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. Now it gets a bit puzzling here. I don't know if you picked this up as we read it. He meant to pass them by. What does that mean? He meant to pass them by. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure. And the commentators, when you read them, they're not entirely sure either. Uh, they come up with some suggestions. One of them is that it's a kind of Old Testament phrase about showing his glory to them. Could be. Um, not totally convinced myself, though it's a possibility. One possibility I liked was that it's that when they, because remember, this is the, uh, this is the, this is 3 a.m., the light is not good, that they saw Jesus and they thought he was probably standing up in another boat going past them. Maybe you're a lighter boat and better oarsman, I don't know. Um, what is clear is that the perspective is shifting from Jesus to the disciples. So if you look at verse 48, it says, and Jesus saw, and then verse 49, when they, that's the disciples in the boat, saw, so the perspective is shifting from Jesus' perspective to the disciples' perspective. So it's possible that we're getting the, the disciples' perspective about the scene. You know, they, they felt that he meant to pass, pass by them, to go past them. And then they think it's a ghost because they see actually there's no boat. He's walking on the water as the light gradually gets better. And they cry out. They're terrified when they all saw him. And then he immediately speaks to them and says those words in 50. I'm not entirely sure, so I'm not going to pretend I know when I don't. Um, what is clear is that it, it, this is something supernatural. They're literally in the middle of the lake. The phrase that we have in our translation, which says, uh, where is it? Um, out on the sea, verse 47, is literally in the middle of the lake. And the lake is a deep lake. So there are no sandbanks here. Some people try and say, oh, well, Jesus just knew where the sandbanks were. Well, actually, they were the fishermen. They'd have known where the sandbanks were if anyone did. No, this is, this is miracle. This is Jesus actually walking on the water. And they're terrified. That's clear. They think he's a ghost. Verse 49. Jesus' response, there it is in verse 50. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now that's an interesting phrase because these men would have known their, what we would call Old Testament, their scriptures. And this is a phrase that would have resonated with them if they knew their scriptures as some of them surely did, if not all of them. Because this is, these are the kind of words that are used in the Old Testament scriptures by God alone or about God alone. Only God the Lord speaks 
these kind of words. So, for example, Isaiah 43, we've got an example on the screen. The prophet, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, Fear not, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, for I am the Lord your God. Or again, Isaiah 41, for I, the Lord your God, say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Again, if you know anything about the word for God in the Hebrew, Yahweh, Jehovah God, it's that I am phrase. So there's that, it is I, I am. It's got a divine ring to it. And it's Jesus taking on his lips words which really only God can speak about himself and saying to them, don't be afraid, it's, it's okay. It, it is I, I am here with you. Now in Mark chapter 4, if you remember, the disciples had witnessed the power of Jesus over the wind and the waves, stopping them, do you remember, with a word? And they realized that Jesus was acting like God. Only God has the power to stop the wind and the waves dead in their tracks, together at the same time, so that you get a mill pond in an instant. Only God can do that. And they'd ask at that point, um, who is this? The wind and the waves obey him. So what's going on here in verse 51 and 52? And the answer is we're in for a bit of a shock. Look at 51. Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Why? For they did not understand. Now what do you expect to come next? I don't expect this. But look what it says. They did not understand about the loaves. You think, the loaves? What do you mean about the loaves? Jesus has just done something. This is what, what I think is implied here. They had just stood next to Jesus, the twelve, and right in front of their eyes, they had counted that there were five loaves and two fish. There they were, right in front of Jesus. The thousands of people were sat way out of our, um, the ability to see what was going on right in front of Jesus. But they were standing there around Jesus and they saw his hands take five loaves. And to use the traditional words, they, he multiplied them. He kept breaking them and they kept growing and they kept growing and they kept growing. And the fish, the two little fish, well, we don't know what size they were, but even if they were two big fish, uh, they weren't enough to feed 5,000. But Jesus took these two fish and he started breaking them and he started giving it out and he gave it out and there was it just kept coming. And they saw it with their own eyes. The supernatural, naturally occurring, as it were. It was still fish, it was still bread. It wasn't a supernatural food, but it was supernaturally multiplied. What is going on? They had seen it, if anyone had seen it. And yet, their hearts were hardened, verse 52. It's really shocking language that Mark uses because that's the kind of thing that Jesus had given out about in chapter 3. Do you remember when, when the, the Pharisees were so cross that he healed on the Sabbath and they were trying to catch him out, healing someone on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And it says in verse 5, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. They didn't care about this man. They just cared about their religious rules. 
And Mark is saying, oh dear, oh dear, do you know what's happening here? The very people who are closest to Jesus, who just witnessed the most extraordinary miracle, what's going on inside them? A hardening of their hearts. And Mark is flagging that being close to Christ physically does not necessarily change the heart. Seeing a miracle with your own eyes right in front of your nose doesn't necessarily soften your heart. And in fact, we're going to see as we read on in Mark that the disciples are not going to be seen in a very flattering light from now on. But what about us as we close? When it comes to our response to Jesus and what we learn about him and what we read about him, what is going on inside us? See, all we, we sit here all very nicely in church, don't we? My wife always tells me, it's all right for you, John. You just stand up in front of people and speak. Nobody can, you know, nobody can say, well, that's a load of rubbish. Um, as I get at home, you know, obviously, when I'm speaking. But um, you know how it is that you, in your kind of family, you can, you can intervene. And with your friends, you can chip in and say, ah, no. But people are so polite in church, aren't they? And they don't, they don't say aloud to me normally anyway. No, you can't believe that. But what's going on inside us? Is that how you're feeling? Is your heart soft or hard? Well, Jesus comes to them, doesn't he? Wonderfully. And he calms them with these words. Now, if I'm, if you'll indulge me with one last little illustration. I've some of you will know this, I've just recently in the last year or two become a grandfather and it's a great state of life and, and some of you may have seen me last Sunday when I was on a day off but I was here in church because this is my church family and I was actually in that room. <laughs> hello Emma, hello Jessica, uh, Evie, sorry. Um, and I discovered what it's like to have a tiny baby in the ballroom or the room for babies. Uh, it's another world. But one of the things I was told before I went there, because I was left on my own, Joe had to go to work, my wife, and um, the parents of our dear little grandson were off enjoying the, the New Year party that they'd gone to, and I was left holding the, yes, you guessed it, um, don't forget the soother, John, I was told. Always have the soother with you. Worst comes, stick it in the mouth. And you know, it works a treat. Now, it's a terrible illustration, isn't it? But it's wonderful to know that the Lord Jesus is the one who is like a soother. If you'll forgive the illustration. He will always calm us down. And it's fine. It's okay. He'll come to us. 